congratulations. Only 15 hours, 7 seconds to go. What do you need to do? Okay, well, gather yourself. Make your bed. This is a gift to your future self. Check your diary. Check your emails. Oh, God. Okay, close your emails. Scroll through Instagram instead. Now, take your vitamins. Grab that vitamin C, that zinc, that D3, that probiotic, that multivitamin, that milk thistle, that antidepressant, that anti-anxiety, that super full pill, that B12. Where did you put Mshonyan? Take that too. Make a workout shake. Workout. You will need the following. Ingredients. A body. Arundhati Roy says the pandemic is a portal, so you try pay attention to your attention. If your body is an unsafe ship, you may substitute it for a man's body. You will need a sports bra. The pandemic is the end of days. At least, that's what your mother reminds you when she tells you to go and get right with God. Perhaps this is the inevitable reckoning, preparing us for the big awakening. You'll need running shorts. Stop being sarcastic. Come on, grab your running shorts. Maybe the pandemic is an elaborate conspiracy to conceal the lizard alien takeover. Huh. You'll need socks. Okay, go grab your socks. Honestly, the pandemic is just an opportunity for more research about the killability of black bodies. Cue the think pieces about why African streets aren't strewn with dead bodies. This you read from a reputable international media house. You will need running shoes. Maybe the pandemic is a catalyst for the inevitable race war. Again, didn't we have one of those already? You'll need a cell phone. Your Uber driver will regale you with the tales of the pandemic as a 5G conspiracy. <laughs> Grab yourself out anyway. You'll need your keys, your earphones, a running pouch. The pandemic is a slouch towards Bethlehem, something about a center that won't hold. But the center has never held, so maybe more a Chebe than Yates. You'll need a mask. The pandemic is collective ambiguous loss. You are not alone. Certainty was always an illusion. You will need your pepper spray. Curate your loneliness. Method. Step one. Warm up. Place your headphones and cell phone and keys into your running pouch. Conceal all underneath a loose t-shirt. Now hook your pepper spray into your running pouch. Consider a water bottle. Consider the feasibility of a water bottle and your ability to reach for the pepper spray. Okay. Mm -mm. Decide against the water bottle. Step 2. Switch from Wi-Fi to cell phone data. Check your Namola app. Turn on your Nike running app. Cue a podcast. Step 3. Stretch. Put on a mask. Lock your door. Walk downstairs. Step 4. Brace yourself. Inhale for 2 steps. Exhale for 3 steps. Do not hold your breath. It's time to get running. Step 5. You're running. You're outside and you're running. This is good. Do not get startled by the hooting. Run. Never mind the exhaust fumes. Run. Turn into a leafy avenue. Run. Step six. Send piercing dead stares and tut audibly as you pass a group of women in yoga pants standing in the middle of the road, chatting with no masks on. Your mask is making it hard to inhale through your mouth. Okay, fine. Try inhaling for two steps, exhaling for three steps. Focus on breathing through your nose. Fill your body with air. God, this isn't working. 
you stop to take off your mask at the corner. Step 7. Do not stare when you see Umama in a uniform emerge from behind high walls with a blonde baby wriggling at her side. Continue running. Inhale through the nose. Exhale for two steps. Exhale for three steps. Do not hold your breath. Step 8. When Ubaba Otize, walking a comical combination of, what is that, a Maltese poodle and a pedigree Great Dane, stops to greet his friend with, ah, great, an Alsatian, across the road, stop to check if they see you before running past them. Do not get chased by dogs. Inhale for two steps. Exhale for two steps. The American Union ear is talking about black lives. Step 9. When the private security car slows down, to unhelpfully remind you, Kijima, my size. Don't curse, don't cry. Your legs are heavy, but pick up your pace and get past the Gupta compound. Promise yourself that you will spray the next cat caller. No, you can't shout your credentials. That won't save you. Step 10. Reach for your phone. Pretend to take a photo until they drive away. No, you're not going to report them when you get home. Do not recall the mugging in December. Okay, okay, you've done enough. Turn around now at the zoo. Step 11. Enjoy spring's first unfurling of buds. You'll be followed home by a menacing man. You will tell him that he is frightening you. You'll be followed anyway. He will tell you that your ass looks so good as he comes closer. Do not regret wearing these pants. Do not cover your butt. Do not start crying. Your tears don't have that kind of magic, black girl. Focus. Sprint to the nearest security guard in a Wendy house. Catch your breath when you encounter an old woman. Forget social distancing. Meet her pace. Holding your breath, that won't do. Breathe. Breathe. Inhale for two steps. Exhale for three steps. Step 12. Get home. Drink water. Stretch. Do not go running alone again. Another aspect in which breath is crucial in our well-being is the role that it plays in exercise. But as the second extract we just played from Dr. Nosipom Komezulu's piece shows, and as we explore in more detail with my next guest, Professor Tulula Oni, breathing during exercise is about much more than simply individual physical health. I am Tulula Oni. I am a public health physician and urban epidemiologist. I am director of a research program at the University of Cambridge MRC Epidemiology Unit that focuses on diet and physical activity research and I can tell you a little bit more about that. And I'm also an extraordinary professor at Innovation Africa under the Department of Architecture at the University of Pretoria in South Africa. So lovely to have someone with such expertise and so many wonderful connections with us on the podcast. So we're here together to talk about your really exciting and innovative research project about air pollution and urban well-being in African cities. So we thought perhaps we should start with 
a conversation about what the links are between air pollution mm. and human health. I think you're really mm. well positioned to explain what the kind of physiological links are between the air that we breathe and our, our bodies and their well-being. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Mahita. Well, luckily, we know intuitively that we need air to breathe. In mm -hmm. fact, it's just one of those things that is very simple to explain in terms of why air is important. But what often is less clear is why the quality of air is important. I'll delve, delve a little bit into that. But we know, for example, that over 95% of the world, of people across the world, breathe air that doesn't meet the standards of the World Health Organization. Why is it such a big thing? Well, we know that the pollutants in the air impact our health in very different ways. They impact our lung health, which is perhaps the most intuitive, mm. right? It increases the risk of conditions like asthma and chronic lung disease. And it certainly plays a key role in the rise that we're seeing in asthma of really all ages globally. Mm. But also less well known is its impact on other organs. So for example, because the particulate and particularly the smaller particulate matter can get into the small vessels, blood vessels in our bodies, it significantly increases the risk of heart attacks. Wow. And of strokes. Hmm. Um, it increases the risk of not just asthma, but pneumonia, particularly in children under five. Mm. And so when we think about air pollution, it's important that we're not just thinking about, about lung health, which is the most intuitive, which is really critical, but also the broader impact. It also impacts our brain health. So it's significantly associated with cognitive decline in elderly people and impairs cognitive development in children. So yeah. for example, it's been associated with decreases in performance IQ in children. And it also exacerbates inequality because if I take the example of cognitive development, there's a lot of research that shows that it particularly affects children from lower socioeconomic status households even more in mm. terms of the impact on the performance IQ than children in general so right. so you can see from the lungs to the heart to the mm. brain it has a significant impact on health and really it's not okay yes. that we accept this <laughs> level of air quality and it really seems strange that even though it seems like there's all the scientific evidence to back up the the need for clean air and our bodies to mm. function well yet we seem to have become habituated to breathing mm. Mm -hmm. really polluted air, especially in, in mm. our cities. Mm -hmm. I think a significant part of it is that we, we often, most of the time, can't see it, mm. right, firstly. And that secondly, it can impact health in a delayed manner, right? right? So if you think about the way that it increases the risk of heart attacks, it's not like drinking polluted water where tomorrow you have diarrhea, mm. right? So mm. there's certain things that impact the ways that we've evolved and our biases, right, in terms of how we perceive emergencies. Firstly, right. we don't see it. Secondly, its impact is delayed. And thirdly, it can be disconnected in silos, right? So, for example, the sectors whose activities influence air quality the greatest are rather divorced 
from the healthcare sector where you would see increased admissions in asthma mm -hmm. children, for example. Right. So these are different people. So we can separate these things and you can really see the power of bringing things together. When we can show that spikes in air pollution impacts on health, actually in the short term in this way, it lends a very powerful argument to action. But in our day to day, these things are siloed. Right. Or when we can see it, right? You know, sometimes mm -hmm. in cities, you have this brown haze. Mm. People think, oh my goodness, we have to do something about it. The air was bad before that, right? But we don't perceive the emergency when we can't see it. Right. So I think, I mean, I know you're involved in multiple research projects, but there's one in specific that you're leading on and that I think you devised yourself about how to gather evidence that shows the link, right, mm. between the kind of what Rob Nixon would call the slow violence of air pollution and its mm -hmm. impact. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us more? I know you're a big runner yourself. You, you yeah. love running. You're very good at running. <laughs> <laughs> so you've married running with a project that seeks to collect evidence to show mm. the impact of air pollution mm. on well-being mm. in certain communities. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us more about this really innovative project where you're getting runners to collect data about air pollution. Yeah. yeah, it started, you know, from my running experience. I, you know, I run in public space. When I travel, I travel a fair bit. And I started noticing that the experience of running in different cities varied in terms of how easy it was to run and the different health risks and different climate risks that one encountered between cities, but also within cities, right? So I could, you know, I could tell, I could go to a city that I didn't know at all and you could be running through and you can tell when you've got to, a, you get to a well-off area without knowing the area because it's just suddenly the air feels different, there's a bit of shade, there's a bit more green, there's a fewer holes in the road, and it's just the running experience differs. So I started thinking, well, how can we better understand, because public space is exactly that, it's public, right? And mm. it's something that should be developed in our collective interest. Physical activity, I mean, running is just what I use because is my entry point and it's just really fast walking, right? <laughs> <laughs> but it's the health behavior that we really want to encourage, right? Because what's happening alongside this air pollution in many of our cities across our continent is that we're seeing a rise in non-communicable diseases like obesity, like diabetes, like high blood pressure. And to really tackle this, to prevent these, we want people to be more physically active, right? We want people to eat better. We want people to be more physically active. But it's one thing to say that, mm. right? What we need to do, in addition to educating people about the need to be physically active, is we need to make the healthy choice the easy choice. Mm. We need to create public spaces that are healthy, that people can safely walk and cycle and run in. Mm. So I started asking, well, what do we know about air pollution as one of the critical health risks that we face? Because by the way, we did a previous study in Lagos, in Nigeria, in Yaoundé, in Cameroon, and we were looking at the ways that people appropriate public space for physical activity. Mm. And through that, the health risks that they encountered that came through were air pollution, safety and injury. So mm. we focused on air pollution to say, well, how can we understand how air quality varies within and between cities mm. and one of the things that we very quickly encountered was that it's not been sufficiently measured mm. right 
So you have large cities. And if you look at well, what is the quality of air in Cape Town today? Well, we have a number of sensors in parts of the city, but it by no means gives a sufficiently good enough sense of well, what a different parts of the city breathing. So the first thing we realize is the need for more decentralized and localized air quality monitoring, mm. right? The second thing we realized there was a need for was to connect this air quality to health, right? Because health is something that, you know, animates us. We know <laughs> we all want to be healthy. And running is something that we associate, we know is a healthy behavior that we want to promote. And that is something that should be possible in public space. It shouldn't be, oh, you need to run more, join a gym. Well, that's mm. not really sound and <laughs> rational for most people mm. so so we wanted to connect it to health right and highlight the fact that we didn't sufficiently have enough data that was integrating a quality data and health data so that was why the running and then the third thing that we wanted to do was to show the potential and the power of young people to be part of the solution, right? So not just as beneficiaries, but being part of this participatory process of both measuring and decision-making in cities for healthy and climate-resilient public spaces. Mm. And by the way, I bring those things, two things together, health and climate resilience, because we're talking about air pollution. It's the lowest hanging fruit, right? Mm. Most, most air pollutants are greenhouse gases. Mm. Air pollution has a significant health. Tackling right. air pollution could significantly improve health in quite a short space of time. I'm going mm. a little bit over the place, mate. I'm going to take you back and give you one quick yeah. example. There was a study that was done in the US at the start of the pandemic when we had the most extreme lockdown. And they found that the states in the US that dropped their air pollution the highest because of the lockdowns significantly reduced their heart attacks over mm. a four-month period. Interesting. Right. So what we're talking about with air pollution is not just, oh, in the future, it will improve our health. Mm. Oh, in the future, it will help with climate action. It's now. Mm. Right. So this is the urgency. So the Citizens for Clean Air project is we start off on what you're talking about. We're running it in three cities across the continent. We're running it in Cape Town, in South Africa, in Lagos, in Nigeria and in Accra, in Ghana. What are we doing? We are working with young people age 18 to 35. And by the way, Mahita, I don't like the word young people in the African context because it's actually the majority demographic, mm -hmm. right? When we talk about young people, it almost seems like a niche group. What is young people when 70% mm. of people are under 35? Right? Exactly. It's the majority. Mm. <laughs> if you're not dealing with young people, then who are you dealing with? <laughs> Good so, point. But anyway, let's just, <laughs> let's just call them young people because we don't have the word for it. We have a public recruitment and we did this in Cape Town in July. We did this in Accra in August and we're doing this in Lagos in September. We recruit seven to 10 young people who are passionate about health, passionate about environmental justice, passionate about climate. And then we train them over two days of workshop on advocacy, on understanding this connection between air quality, public space, health and climate, mm -hmm. on approaches to measure. They then design their own running routes, right? So they're also runners of all sorts. <laughs> they design their own running routes across each city. So for example, in Cape Town, we had eight different running routes, right, across the city that was designed by the run leaders. Mm -hmm. On the same day, 
they run through the city along their running routes, carrying a air quality sensor, just a tiny air quality sensor that maps the air quality along their route mm -hmm. and an app that we've developed. And what that app does is it enables them to capture geolocated data that is audio data, photographic data, video data, text data on the quality of their built environment as they're encountering during the run. So mm -hmm. things that they encounter that they see as sources of good air or sources of bad air right. or health risks they encounter or health benefits they encounter. So that could be I run through a park and that's a lovely health benefit because it's it's green and it's shaded and it's a source of clean air because we know trees also help to improve the quality of our air. It could be a hole in the road that poses a health risk. Hmm. It could be a construction site that is seized as a source of air pollution. So what that does is really animate and illustrate the number data that they're collecting from their sensors that they're also carrying. So you can see it as a kind of scan of the city in one moment in time. And then we are bringing those data together spatially. So on a map to say, mm -hmm. okay, across each of these different routes, this is the quality of the air. These are the experiences of the runners mm -hmm. um, whilst running through there. And then we bring the run leaders back together in a second workshop, which is happening in October in those three cities to then say, what did we find? What was your mm. experience and your run? How was that similar or different to other runners in your city? Mm. And they're going to use that evidence that they generated, those data stories that they generated to design advocacy messages that they will be implementing in November. So in each city, the different run leaders will kind of, between them, cover significant parts of the entire city. Exactly, Right. exactly. And then the little devices that they carry to measure the pollution along the route that they run, what does the device actually like measure? measure? They're different air pollutants, right, that you can measure. Mm -hmm. The ones that we focus on because we have the strongest evidence in terms of both their impacts on health and their climate warming impact are the particulate matter. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's two types of particular matter, but specifically the particular matter 2.5 that we focus on, particular matter 10. So those are just two different sizes mm -hmm. of particular matter. And then the third is the NO2, so nitrous oxide. And that's a pollutant that we often see from cars and from mm -hmm. vehicles. So it tells us a little bit about the source of those. Mm -hmm. So we're particularly interested in those aspects of the pollutants that the sensor captures. Right. So you bring together this kind of quantitative kind of hard data mm. with the mm. the more experiential and kind of mm -hmm. subjective experiences mm -hmm. of the runners. I think that might yeah. be quite a really an yeah. interesting conversation yeah. between those two kinds of data, for sure. Exactly, exactly. And I'm quantitatively trained, but with what I call the tyranny of the quantitative, mm. right? So I could say this because we often dismiss objective data. And then there's the subjective, mm -hmm. which even if the objective quantitative data says one thing, we can't dismiss the experience, right? Because that mm. is what animates people. That's what drives people, right? Yeah. So we have to bring those data together and it's not one in service of the other, but actually of course. there's a complementarity Absolutely. that helps to get the message across and helps to inform action. Yeah, as a as a qualitative you know, researcher myself, I couldn't agree with you more. But then there is the yeah. power of the, the quantitative, right? And I think especially exactly. policymakers respond to that, mm, right? If, exactly. If you show them like a graph that says, yeah. look how this area of your city is more polluted than that area. Now yeah. do something about it. 
Yeah, exactly. I sense a great optimism in just the way that you think and the way that you talk about your research. And how do you think this research could impact on policymaking in African cities? I mean, we do have in different ways, <laughs> with different mm. reasons, in all of the different contexts on the continent, mm. right? Different mm. levels of political will, sometimes absent, sometimes present. What do you think it would take for the politicians and policymakers who run our cities to respond positively, yeah. to yeah. make the spaces more livable, more walkable, more runnable, mm. healthier? You're absolutely right that I'm optimistic. I'm not just optimistic, I'm hopeful, mm. right? There's three reasons why. The first is that you know, in the cities that we focus on, you know, on the African continent, there's a lot of change happening, right? And in that change is, it can be seen as a challenge and it often is a challenge, but that's where possibility lies. If you try changing something where nothing is moving, <laughs> mm. right? So much more challenging. So I'm actually really optimistic that our cities are growing, our cities are evolving, and it, therein lies an opportunity to, to think differently at a, about a more people-centered approach. That's the first thing. The second reason I'm optimistic is the youth, right? You know, you can't help but be optimistic when you interact a lot with young people because you mm -hmm. see an energy and you see this kind of willingness to be part of the solution. Yes, you see a lot of frustration in being marginalized, but you see a kind of there's just so much potential and we just need to harness that in a more mainstream way, not in a tokenistic way, but to say, how can you actually bring that in? And I think mm. we just have that incredible resource. And then the third reason why I'm optimistic is actually relates to policy actors. I think we're all very quick to, and to some extent based, based on experience, talk about all the challenges with government and with politicians, mm. with policy actors, which is true. And what is also true is that within that, there are individuals who are incredibly innovative and really wanting to push the boat out a little bit or quite a lot and see the potential around them. And the more you look for these people working in government, the more I find them, right? It's important that we don't have the singular narrative of yes. we have to convince government. Actually, there's people in government that don't need convincing. What they need is support, right? Mm. And so from my perspective as an academic, I see you have this privilege of nobody's voting for me. I don't have a mandate to deliver on. You know, it's difficult. They have difficult trade-offs and things to deal with. What my privilege and I can bring to it is say, okay, I can look at well, what are the issues here? How can I bring the methodology, the expertise that I bring with my research? You know, you've just made this commitment to say you want to tackle air pollution. How can I support that, actually? Mm. And actually, here's what you already have. Here's the thing. I have the luxury of being able to take a step back. And when you do that, you can see certain things. You can see the siloing of, of data and you can help bring that together to say, okay, let's actually have a look at, you know, would it be helpful for you if I can bring the health and environmental data together to mm. help more strongly make that argument? You know, that is a luxury I have. Would it be helpful if I can explore ways of participatory governance and look at what are the best ways that we can engage. If I can have a platform to say, which is the idea behind the citizen science work and the app to say, if we have a platform that we can use to harness, understand the lived environments that your majority demographic are experiencing, mm. would that help you kind of in real time or as close to real time as possible respond to and anticipate health and climate risks that are there today, but also that you anticipate in next season. So 
those are the reasons why I'm hopeful. And I see, mm. so say, for example, there are, I think, 11 intertial cities across the continent, including in South Africa, Nigeria, Ghana, Ethiopia, Senegal, Sierra Leone, et cetera, of countries across the continent that have made a commitment led by the C40 organization, um, this mayoral initiative, have made a commitment to tackle air pollution in their cities. Right. And mm. so if you look at that, so the, the approach that we're taking in the three cities that we're working at, for example, Lagos and Accra are two of the cities that have made that commitment. How we're engaging with the government in that respect is say, you've made this commitment. This is part of what you say you want to do. Mm. Here's what the young people are doing. Here's what we can do. How can we actually generate contextually relevant data stories and evidence that can support what mm. you have set out to do? Mm. rather than just watch you do something and then let's critique how yeah. well or terribly yeah. you're doing it which let's face it sometimes as academics we do have a penchant for and particularly public health we do mm. preach <laughs> we like to kind of tell everyone what they're doing wrong it's like well you know <laughs> be part of the solution as well yeah. there, is that, uh, there is that opportunity I think you make a really strong argument for how academic research can contribute in very productive and hopeful ways to the work of those who we elect and you know exactly. pay our taxes to to implement mm. for the greater good of everyone one. So that's a really kind of hopeful and I think very encouraging reminder of mm. one of the key roles of academic research, right? And it serves both purposes. You're generating research that is impactful, which is what we all say we want to do, mm. right? And the policy actors have the kind of evidence-informed policy that they would ideally like to have. So for example, in this project, the last thing I didn't mention is that the reason why they're implementing it in November, the advocacy campaign that is evidence-informed, mm -hmm. is because that's when COP27 is happening in Africa, right. it's happening in right. Egypt. Mm. And so what we're wanting to do is just draw attention to air pollution as an important action lever point mm. right for health and climate change yes. we're going to be having an, an activation in egypt as well as part of this project right we're going to have sessions and exhibits and actually hopefully <laughs> we haven't sorted out yet but actually a run with young people, not just from the cities that we're involved in, not just from African youth from all over the world. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a really exciting example of Africa-led global action, mm. Africa-led, youth-led global action, because if we're the ones rapidly urbanizing the fastest, we're the continent with the youngest population, any innovation that's happening globally should be coming from here, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a great example of at a COP27 event that is on our continent. We want to showcase the power and the potential and really already what the youth are doing in this space, kind of redefining science and redefining mm. citizenry, which is mm. one of the citizen science mm. components, and really leading globally in how we can integrate this kind of place health in the center of climate action mm. demonstrated through action on air pollution. Yeah, it's so inspiring. You've given a whole new set of perspectives on what a simple run can mean in so mm. many multiple ways, right? For physical health, for climate health, for city health, for community connection. So it really is in so many ways an inspiring project. Time to read the room. Here's a recommendation from Dr. Ella Manga. I'm learning the most about life through nature right now. So I'm really inspired by the natural laws that we see playing out in nature and how we can align with them 
you know, so I'm fascinated by fractals that we see in nature and the sacred geometry that is reflected within our physical bodies. So right now I'm reading several books, Braiding Sweetgrass. I am mm. reading The Spell of the Sensuous by David Abraham. So that is really looking at language and how language has separated us from the sensory experience of life, which you know also speaks to our relationship with breath. I recommend Born to Run by Christopher McDougall. This is a journalistic exploration of ultra-marathon running, taking in a whole variety of perspectives of people who run. But of particular interest is the story told of a community of indigenous Mexicans, the Tarahumara, who are the best distance runners in the world. In 1993, one of them, at the age of 57, came first in a prestigious 100-mile race wearing sandals. This book is about elite ultra-marathon runners, yes, to an extent, but more poignantly, it's a book about human physiology and how every single one of us was evolved to run. The human body is perfectly evolved to run long distances. Speed is not the issue. Speed is not important. Distance is something that we can do. So even for people who don't run, don't like to run, don't want to run, this book is kind of inspiring because it really instills a certain respect for the bodies that we've evolved and which carry us through life. And for those who do not like the idea of going for a run, it may at the very least encourage a lovely walk around your neighborhood, taking in the sights and perhaps while you're at it, checking the air quality of your neighborhood. I hope this podcast has offered some food for thought about what breathing means for our individual and collective health, and also how breathing can provide a route for innovative citizen science-driven research and also critical cultural theory. We'll include links to the project on our show notes, so please explore them further if you're interested. And finally, before you go, let's take one more breath together. Inhale, two, three, four. Hold, one, two, exhale, two, three, four. This episode of The Academic Citizen was produced by me, Mahita Ikani, with assistance from Taryn McKay. Thanks to our guests, Dr. Elamanga and Professor Talula Oni. So much appreciation to Dr. Nosipo Mkomezulu for permission to reproduce parts of her audio essay, Hold for 60, None, 2 and 7, A Recipe for Disaster Management. This episode was edited and sound designed by Victoria de la Harp with marketing and communications by Fumani Mabohwane. The Academic Citizen is a project of the South African Research Chair in Science Communication, hosted at Stellenbosch University and funded by the South African National Research Foundation. The aims of our podcast are to create a space for wide and deep discussion about key issues animating 
higher education in South Africa, Africa, the Global South, and beyond. Creates a space for interdisciplinary exchange for academic researchers and educators. Help researchers, educators, and scientists to tell their stories and listen to and learn from each other's insights and experiences. And create a space for science in all forms to be communicated in order to serve social justice. We welcome your feedback, opinions, and suggestions for future guests and show themes. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or visit our website www.the-academic-citizen.org Thank you.